This really is an unprecedented amount of control that humans are beginning to be able to exert over their own DNA and their own evolution as a species. And it is a responsibility to, you know, make sure that people are paying attention. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in today. Today we bring you my conversation with Megan Multaney, staff writer at Wired Magazine. Megan's writing lies at the intersection of health, science, and technology, and in the last few years she has emerged as one of journalism's experts on CRISPR. In this conversation we dig into CRISPR, the Internet of Things, what makes for a wired story, and Megan's winding path to professional journalism, a path that included studying with one of my favorite writers, Michael Pollan. It was great to learn from Megan, and I'm excited for you to hear our conversation right now. Okay, so you're here today with Megan Multaney. Megan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. Are you really happy to be here? Yeah. We kind of had to twist your arm a little bit. I mean, we're running out of days. You're here for a limited number of days. And I feel like we pushed it right to the limit almost. Commitment is hard. <laughs> Anything more than a few days out is is tricky. And you live under deadlines too. Exactly. Right? I mean, what's it like living under like you you get out like two big stories a week typically. Yeah, it's it's unpredictable. Um yeah. that's kind of just the news business. Uh luckily so I cover science, which tends to have a little bit more of a predictable cadence to it. There are journals that come out, you know, every Monday, every Wednesday, every Thursday. So there's kind of some amount of planning that can happen. But, you know, we're also trying to tell science stories about breaking news as it happens. And yeah. and so it's it's just uh, when, when you say, like, let's do something on December 5th, I'm like, yeah, sure, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> right. You might be under deadline then. You might have been just assigned a story. You might have to do an interview out of town or remotely or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for being flexible. I know we had to push today oh, <laughs> because yeah, I had no an interview come up. So Of course. Can you tell us about that interview? Sure. Yeah. It was um, – it was pretty wild, actually. So it's about a project that's going to be published next week. Um, and the short version is it's basically a demonstration of something called the DNA of things. So if you, you know, think of your Internet of Things, you have all these devices that are connected to yep. each other um, kind of digitally. This is – imagine – it's basically a system where you take – an object's some information about an object. So, say this coffee cup right here. Say we had a this this drum coffee this drum cup. coffee cup. Okay. We had, just want to be specific <laughs> as we describe such things in a, in an audio environment. Yeah. So, say we had a, a digital blueprint for this cup. So, kind of the the CAD file that the producer used to to make this cup. Uh-huh. You could take that data file, that kind of three D rendering, turn it into a DNA file. Then take that DNA, cover it in like a silica capsule, almost like a bead, and then weave that into a 3D printing filament. Got it. And then it doesn't have to be 3D printing. It could be, well, what is this? This is ceramic. Actually, ceramic would work. So then you have you basically inside this ceramic cup, you, there would be, if you chipped off a little piece of it and you pulled the DNA out of it, you would be able to have the blueprint of the cup that came out of a piece of the cup. So that's what this paper is about. Jeez, <laughs> well, Louise. I mean, we could dive, we could do this whole podcast about just that. So every, like when you say chip off a piece, like what is the minimal unit 
of cup to communicate this form of DNA. Tiny. Tiny. Yeah, just like a little shape. It's not like a atom or a molecule or a no. cell. Like, what is it? No. So you. So um, so basically, they're able to do in a single bead. You can do about. 60 pieces of bead. DNA, okay. so a single silica bead, which you can't see except with a microscope, 60 of these kind of short strings of DNA. And basically that would be enough for something this simple. You probably just need a few of those beads to be able to have the whole data file. Okay. Wow. Well, we skipped some steps there. <laughs> but that's that's the kind of – that's kind of uh, tip, somewhat typical of the kinds of things that we're covering at Wire, which is like – just this people who are thinking on this like crazy out there yeah. scale and like they're showing it, you know, the example they did was a 3D printed bunny um, that had a blueprint of itself. And then they also um, embedded a video into a pair of eyeglasses into the glass itself. Okay, um, Those are just kind of proof of concepts. But what they're getting at is a kind of way, a system for um, – having supply chain transparency and integrity, where instead of a barcode, where then that barcode takes you to a website, and that website might not be around in five years, all that information is actually physically embedded immutably in the object itself. And so what is the benefit of capturing that in the actual thing? So it's useful in terms of making, uh, of tracking objects okay. and, you know, kind of, as I said, kind of gave the example of the the website. Like websites can change, and information can be changed yeah. after the fact. Yeah. But if you you know want to have a piece of information that kind of is good over a long period of time, DNA can last thousands of years. So say you have an object that you know a hundred years from now, you want to be able to pull out some information about it, and you don't know kind of what the the data yep, storage yep. or uh, kind of translational technology is going to be, kind of that's that's a useful It seems case. like it's sort of a merger of DNA with blockchain in, in a strange way. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's pretty wild. Anyway, um, okay, so we got to roll back and do a little bit of bio before we get to this sort of DNA of things, which I want to drill into more. Um, yeah, so staff writer at Wired, which is a pretty elite gig. Uh, let's talk about how, how you got there. Like you studied bio, biology at Carleton, and then what you do between Carleton and, and grad school? <laughs> mm, great question. Um, wandered around for a while in That's the wilderness. Okay. Um, yeah, I like I, an actual wilderness. Sometimes, yeah. Okay. Uh, some some urban, some not some less urban. Uh, yeah, so I graduated in 2008 with a biology degree, um, kind of with a focus on molecular biology and kind of pre-med. Pre-med, yeah. So at the at what point did you decide going into medicine is not for me? Um, like the day after graduation. Really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and yeah, for, for matters we don't necessarily have to get into, I kind of had uh, my midlife crisis early. And, it's a good time to have uh, it. Yeah. Get it out of the way. Yeah. And so basically spent the next kind of two and a half, three years just trying to try a bunch of things and figure out if I liked any of them. So I worked in a couple different labs. I worked, um, there's this stream lab at the University of Minnesota. If you ever get to go there, it's really cool. Um, it's right on the Mississippi River. And you, it basically is kind of like a riparian habitat. Oh, like actual streams. Got yeah, it. like actual streams. Yeah. 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 Um, although my job was to like be in waders and like 40 degree and like pulling silt out of the bottom Ooh. to like recirculate it. It was intense. Um, so I did that. I worked at a literary art center. I 
um, bartended, I served, I baristaed. So you got a full education. Yeah, kind of <laughs> just um, did that like mid early twenties, uh, just kind of figuring stuff out. And I spent about seven months in Costa Rica as mm-hmm. a research assistant uh, down there doing some marine ecology work. And and actually, that's kind of where things turned uh, for me. And one of the projects I was working on was it was a kind of foraging survey with this population of sea turtles. And so we would go out and find turtles that lived in this area and we would um, pump their stomachs to find out what they've been eating. And we had put little cement, little GPS trackers on them so we could keep track of them. And we're kind of doing this. The research station was near a beach that was often filled with like German tourists and other kind of Europeans. And so they would wander over and be like, why are you torturing these animals? Um, And, and so I was constantly trying to have to to explain what we were doing from a scientific perspective. And, And then oftentimes there were people who were local. And so doing that in Spanish, which was even trickier. And, and I just, at some point I realized that that challenge of trying to make a story out of the science that we were doing was a lot more rewarding than writing down those numbers and <laughs> every day. Sure. Um, so that was when I started to kind of investigate science journalism as a profession. It wasn't really something that was on my radar previously, and, and were you a consumer of science journalism at that point? Like, like did you not care like about it? casually. Um, yeah. I started actually when I was during the period of time when I was down there. I started listening to Radio Lab a lot yeah. because I had a lot of free time alone, um, and so that was certainly formative. Uh, there was also kind of a a library at the research station of kind of pop science, and so I read a lot of that, and that was really like my first kind of exposure to that. Um, I hadn't, I, I was much more into like kind of classic literature as a, as a child and yeah. Tolkien and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, trying to make that leap was a little bit tricky as a 25 year old. Sure. Um, thinking, about, thinking about entering journalism as a career, if you, if you need more education, what sort of job to get, is that what you're talking about? Exactly. Like I didn't have any experience. And at the time in which I was thinking about that, you know, that's around 2011. So we're kind of recession still happening. The news business is getting hit really hard by all the stuff that's going on with, you know, social media and digital yep. advertising. Yep. And so it, it wasn't like a great time <laughs> to try to get a kind of entry level journalism job with with no experience. Yeah. Applying to like the local newspaper is probably yeah, not a great option work. at that point. Um, so I kind of looked at my options and decided that grad school would be kind of the the quickest way to acquire those skills and get some connections uh-huh. and um, but that but I also didn't I wasn't really qualified for for grad school <laughs> either um, so what I wound up doing was kind of conning my way into uh, an internship at Minnesota Public Radio okay. for one of their um, like flagship news programs and they only took students because they were unpaid internships so I actually had to enroll I found I did a bunch of research and found the Twin Cities. Um, community college that had the lowest uh, basically barrier to entry and enrolled in a one credit internship class. Just to get the student ID so you could apply for the internship. Yeah. yeah. Love it. And I went to like three classes to get some paperwork signed. Yep. And um, and that was basically enough to uh, have some newsroom exposure and uh, 
between that and I think I had a a, a unique resume and wanted to do something pretty specific. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, it was enough to to get into um, Berkeley journalism. School yeah, term. why Berkeley? I mean, elite institution, but there there are several. Why why Berkeley? Yeah, I, well, there's a couple of reasons, and I the other programs I had been interested in were specifically looking at science reporting. Okay. Um, so I looked at Johns Hopkins and MIT. And those were um, really geared toward people who had some journalism background, but like didn't really understand, you know, how to read a scientific paper, or, like what mm. the publishing, um, you know, landscape kind of looked like. And it was a lot of like embedding in labs and and getting that. And I and I kind of had had some of that experience already, and I just I needed to know like what a lead is and what's fact checking. Um, and so, uh, so the science piece, you sort of had that figured out a little bit from your undergrad, from your your field experience, and so you were thinking, okay, I got to learn the craft of journalism. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I just, yeah, I need, to, <laughs> I need to get in there and get my like reporter's toolbox. And, sure. Um, and so, I, so Berkeley kind of stood out. Um, it was really, you know, kind of leading the pack in terms of new media journalism at the time. Uh-huh. Does that mean it still is? And I also had, um, there was kind of a pipeline of people from Carleton to Berkeley at oh, that interesting. period of time. And so there were maybe 18 to 24 kids I had gone to college uh-huh. with who were all there pursuing other degrees. Um, and there was kind of this just center of gravity um, that pulled me in. And, and so between that and, and just um, the school itself uh, was really awesome. I was also kind of uniquely drawn to it because Michael Pollan. Yeah, let's talk about him. He's one of my favorite writers and thinkers. At what point did you intersect with him? Yeah, well, I had, Omnivore's Dilemma was one of the books I had read while I was in Costa Rica um, and and was really um, drawn to the way he can kind of, he's he's so personable in the way that he he puts you kind of in that that driver seat view of, you know, taking you through the the science and the politics and the social landscape, and I, I just thought that was an incredibly impressive kind of singular talent that he mm-hmm. had. And I, so he, his schedule when I was there was he kind of taught one semester and took um, two students for under his uh, as as advisees for their theses, and then he was off the other semester okay. um, do, writing his books. Sure, and. Uh, so my, so the way Berkeley works is the first semester you actually, the school runs, um, a handful of online news sites. And so you come on and you get assigned to one of them and you become a beat reporter. And basically you spend the whole first semester kind of in that community reporting local stories and you're kind of in classes a little bit, but it's, they're all geared toward actually covering news. And, um, the fall I was there was actually the year, the fall that Occupy Oakland broke out. Okay. Um, and so it was very, <laughs> it was very much trial. There's a lot happening here. By fire. So yeah. it was like, uh, you know, in the morning, we'd have some class about, you know, how to structure a profile. And then in the afternoon, you'd be getting tear gassed. Um, so it was, <laughs> it was, it was really interesting. Um, and, a and, a yeah, a, a, a real kind of throw in the deep end. And and then um, I was kind of working the latter part of um, my first year. I was doing a lot of radio work. Um, and then you have to choose a thesis path based on medium. And okay. I 
even though I'd been spending a lot of time doing radio, I knew I wanted to work with Michael. So I um, decided I pitched a print feature. Sure. Um, and then wound up working with him for that. And then I, so I took a class from him and then he was my advisor on that, along with um, Edwin Dobb, who uh, was also really wonderful. And he passed away very recently. Oh, so I'm sorry. He's actually from Montana. He's from uh, Butte. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. He's a, he's a Montana native. So, Michael Pollan seems like one of those unique characters. Um, he has very different work than a guy like Malcolm Gladwell, but they're sort of equally compelling through their written work as they are through their work in person, whether it's reading their own audio books or doing interviews or whatever. But yeah, that, that's not a talent that all writers have for sure, but it just seems to like he's a transcendent storyteller in many ways. So that must have been pretty incredible to work with him. Yeah, there was definitely, I think, maybe the most illuminating day was where he actually <laughs> opened up his uh, computer and kind of put it on the big screen and took us through um, kind of one of his first big magazine profile stories okay. that he wrote for the New York Times magazine, which was about, gosh, I can't remember what the name of it was now, but it was about the, um, he bought a cow. And he followed right. it through. And that became like the motivating intro to Omnivore's Dilemma, if I yeah, recall. Yeah, exactly. So that feature kind of led to the, to the book. Um, and so he kind of just opened up all the files and, and kind of took us inside, um, you know, inside the sausage factory, so to speak. And I, I think one of the things that I took away um, from him that's, that's really helped me in my own reporting is because he – because oftentimes when you're reporting something for a long time, you kind of forget what you knew when and you just, oh, yeah. you know, and you forget what other people don't know. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to write from this place of like really steeped, like deeply steeped in it. Um, and so what, what, what he actually does is every day that he reports, he writes a, kind of like a journal, he keeps a journal of what he kind of like what he knew at the beginning, what he knew at the end, what questions he had. And so he's reporting on his reporting. He's reporting on his reporting. Um, and that's really helpful when you go back and you're and, and you and I think it's I think it really comes through in, in his writing where he you know that he knows all this stuff and so but the naive kind of place that you started at the beginning does feel genuine. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that in terms of academic research. You know, I have a colleague that says, you know, if, if you ever get to the point where you can't explain it to your grandmother, you've lost. And, and, and that becomes increasingly challenging as a research prize. You get deeper and deeper into, into a narrower and narrower slice of research. Yeah, yeah. It's the same. I mean, we have um, kind of a similar kind of if you're – if you're lost in an interview, you can always kind of fall back on like, all right, now, like if you were to explain this to your, you know, your grandma or your 12-year-old. Yeah, we're not there yet. I'm going to probably fall back on that when we start talking about CRISPR, <laughs> but we're, we're not there yet. Um, yeah, so get out of grad school, um, doing, doing freelance work, publishing in places like Popular Science, Nautilus, uh, Undark, PRX, et cetera. Like what's that experience like? Are you, you got your eyes set on something bigger, I'm, I'm assuming, at that point? Like how, how do you approach a career um, of freelancing in, in, that, in that moment? Yeah, it um, – uh, great question. Um, <laughs> with wide-eyed ingenue. Um, no, I I didn't know that I wanted to I, – I didn't know that I wanted to freelance kind of directly um, out of grad school. I had actually been offered a job in San Francisco as, oh, okay. a, as a radio producer um, that I wound up 
turning down um, for my partner, who you know, who, who teaches here at the University right, of Montana, right. which is the reason why I'm, I'm Fr- in Montana. F- friend of the pod, John Chandler. <laughs> um, and uh, he was living in, in Minneapolis, which is where I had kind of been before grad school, yep. um, which is it, you know, it is a wonderful place. I love the Twin Cities dearly. Uh, it is not a journalism hotbed. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, Minnesota Public Radio is a legit operation. Yes. And you come from there. But you, you're right. Like, it's yes. not the center of the journalistic world, particularly in a world that's consolidating rapidly during this time, right? Yeah. I actually had um, one of the tougher lessons I've had uh, coming back to the, the Twin Cities. So, short, long story short, right as I, basically about the week after I had accepted. Um, to go to Berkeley for grad school. Uh, I was offered a full-time producer job at Minnesota Public Radio because one of the producers on the show I've been working on moved over to become a reporter. Okay. And so I had to turn down that job. I decided Mm. to turn down that job to go to grad school. And then two years go by, the person they had hired for that job doesn't wind up working out. Mm. She leaves and the same exact job is open again. And I was like, oh, great. Well, like now I actually have experience. I can have that job. I can live in Minneapolis. It would be the best. And I applied and I got through a few rounds and I didn't get hired. Oh, no. (laughs) And it was, yeah. And it was like, oh, maybe I have made all the wrong choices. That's got to be like this bit of an existential moment. (laughs) Um, and I, I, I wound up, you know, I was, I had a good relationship with the, with the hiring producer and it was, it wound up being less about me and kind of more about, uh, what they were looking for in that role, which was like an old guard, yeah. <laughs> which they, they got anyways. Um, so then I, I kind of had to just make it up for, as I, as I went along. Cause I was really banking on that, um, <laughs> working out and actually the first, uh, kind of freelance gig that I got that was um, more constant was I was a freelance uh, fact checker for Discover Magazine. Okay. Which was a great, great job right out of grad school um, because as a fact checker, you know, you can kind of, you have this very singular task. Like you're just, you're there to make sure that everything that this person, that, you know, this person has written and this editor has edited is is factually accurate. And so you're kind of, you know, you're doing research. It's kind of, some detective work, but it's also reporting. Yeah. And you also kind of get this behind the scenes look of like, what did this reporter do? What did this editor say? And like, you see the gaps in the reporting or you see like where reporters do really well. Um, and you're talking to scientists all day. And so oftentimes if the story was kind of old, they would have already had something new going on. And so then you could, I could wind up taking something from a a fact-checking conversation that wasn't relevant to that story and using yeah, it's to something like else. Yeah, almost like forensics of journalism <laughs> yeah. in a way, right? Yeah, and I had um, – <laughs> I had I was, you know, doing like reading essays of people who were science journalists that I respected and, and trying to figure out what they had done. And I was reading a, a kind of um, quintessential now, I think – uh, kind of part of the canon, this essay written by Carl Zimmer. And his first, he was, um, he also was a fact checker at Discover Magazine. And mm-hmm. so I was like, well, if it's good enough for Carl, it's good enough for me. Sure. Um, <laughs> which I've now told him now after I've interviewed him, which has been funny. Anyways, um, so I did that. And that was, and that was really, um, that was a great job and kind of led to some opportunities to freelance, yep. pitch stuff other places. Um, but you know, it's, it's definitely a grind. And I think after a few years, it, um, if you're kind of not making progress toward bigger outlets or bigger features, like you start to feel 
a little stagnant. Um, sure. And so that's definitely what happened uh, for me. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Sheila Stearns, Commissioner Emerita of the Montana University System and former president of the University of Montana. You are listening to one of my favorite podcasts, A New Angle. Yeah, and so let's, I mean, now you're a staff writer at Wired. So, I mean, we're, we're kind of doing the career of Megan thing, but let's fast forward a little bit and just like, what's the distinction, um, both in terms of the pragmatic nature of the job, but also the security of it between somebody who's freelancing and somebody who becomes a staff member at an at a ongoing publication? Yeah. So, I mean, logistically speaking, you know, as a staff writer, you – um, your salaried, have benefits, um, you know, have vacation. Uh, luckily, so it's a job, job. It's a job, yeah, job. Um, and you know, it varies newsroom to newsroom, like how, you know, what that, how many hours a week okay. that kind of works out to be. Um, and you know, and, and compared to freelancing, you know, you have kind of less flexibility in the kinds of stories you can pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you when you you have an assigning editor, so when you have a pitch, you can just go to them um, as opposed to you know freelancing, you have to kind of get to know a suite of editors or cold call people. And you may not have insight into those publications. And so if you don't hear back or if you get a no, you don't know. You may not know why that was. Even if you ask them to tell you in a follow-up, you might not get that information. Um, And so there's a much faster kind of turnaround cycle on finding out whether your ideas are are good good or not. Right. Um, And so that was was one of the things I was really looking for was kind of – I was – getting fed up with like shouting into the void and like not yeah, you have this good idea and you throw it out there yeah. and, and the silence doesn't mean it's a bad idea yeah <laughs> right well now you there's no silence like you'll I mean, hear some it of right them away. are bad ideas but sure um, yeah of but course. you might not find out <laughs> which ones are which and so along those lines how does a story kind of come to be at wired like are these ideas that you're generating and if so what's your process and then on the flip side how how often is an editor telling you hey megan you should go check this out yeah, so the the process is a little bit um, different, kind of print and web. Um, I mostly write for the website, and it's also different kind of desk to desk. But okay. basically, um, I write for the science desk. We have an assigning editor. We've got a team of um, four full-time staff writers, and then we've got about four contractors. Um, and we get together Monday morning, and we talk about what we've been following, what's coming up. Um, we kind of pitch stuff, we brainstorm stuff as a group. And then as news happens throughout the week, um, either an assigning editor will say, hey, we have to cover this. Are you free? And find the person who's right for it. Um, or you'd pitch and say like, hey, this thing's happening. I want to write X. And they say, if you're not doing something else already, they're like, great, do it. Um, or if you're doing something else, then you have to talk about prioritizing stories. But sure. um, it's pretty informal fluid yeah yeah so in the in the few years you've been there what's it been like three four years now yeah so i the way so with the way i worked my way into that um was i actually applied to be a uh fellow at Mm -hmm. wired so they do six month um fellowships 
uh, out of their San Francisco office. And I was actually a research fellow. So I worked as, on the fact-checking desk, which um, the way fact-checking works at Wired is every um, kind of word of the print magazine is fact-checked, as well as any kind of long-form or particularly litigious stories for the web. Uh, and so it was six months of um, doing that, which was great because I had had some fact-checking experience, but not for such a uh, kind of high-tier yeah. publication. Yeah. And I, my expectation was that I would learn a bunch of new things, meet some new people, make some new contacts so that I could go back to freelancing but have an in. Um, and what wound up happening was while I was there, I was kind of encouraged by um, Joanna Perlstein, who was who ran the fellow um, program. She has recently left Wired, which is <laughs> a big blow, although she's off to do really cool, cool things. Um, and she encouraged me, you know, are there other things you want to do while you're here? Sure. And I wanted to write about science. And so she connected me with the science editor. Um, I started pitching and writing there. And then when one of the science staff writers left to go to the Atlantic a few months later, oh, job go. opened up. I was encouraged to apply. Um, and yeah, so I basically I started January of 2017. So it's okay. coming up on three years. And it seems like in that time, you have emerged as one of the premier writers and experts on – you're shaking your head, but this is this is true – on CRISPR. I do love CRISPR, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know how much the – I mean, I've listened to uh, some Radio Lab. In fact, the Radio Lab episode that you were on, they love CRISPR too. Um, what is for – the, for the novice out there, what is CRISPR? Why should we care about it? There's also a really good Radio Lab about what CRISPR is. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is actually where I first uh, learned about it. That's um, where That was my first entry point, and yeah. it was horrifying and exciting at the same time. Yeah. Um, so let's see. I guess I don't know how far – which – how far down the rabbit hole? Yeah, this is go. not a podcast about CRISPR, but like, give us the the the, the entry level because I want to get to like, yeah. what should people be doing with this knowledge sure. right now? So basically, you know, it is a it is a kind of a protein that cuts DNA, and it's uh, attached to a little molecule. Um, that basically, what it does is it allows you to direct that DNA cutting enzyme and i'm just like a kind of protein that does something it's like imagine kind of like a clam shaped thing and then it like little pinchers come out and it kind of like clamps okay um and the little piece that comes out of it you can kind of you can program um and so you can direct it anywhere in a genome so and, and it works in any organism so it the what crispr really is a system for is directing something to happen somewhere on a piece of dna and then what happens once you get there kind of depends on which enzyme you have you can kind of switch in and out uh, but really the function that matters is being able to say okay i want to do something i want to make an edit i want to delete uh, something i want to make a cut i want to add something at this particular place in the genome so like in a gene for that causes cystic fibrosis or in a you know in a corn in the like thing that uh you know provides protection against a particular kind of fungus so so yeah well, i mean we might be and i don't know the level at which we are at now but maybe it's preventing a fungus in a corn but sort of the 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 something at some point in the future might be I want my kid to have this, that, or the other, right? Like, I want my kid to be able to jump this high or run this fast or score this on the SAT. And it, that's – you're shaking. Well, shake, I, yeah. I, the, well, this gets into um, – so I think that – well, I think this gets into, like, a m misconception that I think 
a lot of folks in the media, you know, we have some <laughs> responsibility there in yeah. terms of like over hyping this or like not being kind of clear about what it can and, and can't do. But the and, and, and CRISPR kind of when it first came out in 2012, like meant like a really specific thing. And since then, um, scientists have realized that it's kind of it's not just this one this one enzyme that does one thing is this whole system. Okay. So it actually evolved in um, bacteria and it was a way to fight off viruses that would attack them. And so it's actually the system that we've borrowed from the bacterial kingdom and um, kind of repurposed to basically, you can think of it as like a DNA editing system. And there are, there has been overblown kind of how precise it is. You know, it's just like yeah. cut yeah, and paste yeah. and word processing. And it's like, it's like not really that. Like, right, there's, right. like I can go in always... and sign up for my kid to have blue eyes. And... <laughs> well, uh, eye color is easier. Oh, it is. Okay. Because it only involves, you know, like one gene. Um, okay. Things like, you know, height uh, or intelligence as we measure sure. it by IQ. Or being an awesome surfer. Sure. Our, <laughs> I don't know if anyone's figured out the genetic underpinnings of that yet. Right, but right. Complex. Those are these complex, um, you know, kind of multifactorial uh, traits. And so, like, tuning... Uh, you know, some someone's DNA to be able to to look exactly like that. Like we like we don't know. Both we don't know enough about like what the connections are between the particular strings of DNA that would make that trait, and like making all those making all those edits. We don't know like is that going to somehow like environment matters too. So mm-hmm. if you make all these edits, does that somehow have this negative impact on this other? Like that those things are kind of beyond the reach of CRISPR. But if you have something that's happening in, in a single gene or a couple of genes. Um, and you kind of know what – if you make that change, you know what the outcome is. CRISPR has completely changed kind of the ease in which you can make those changes. Okay. I mean, I can see why this was interesting to you. That that, that part of it is is obvious. How do you approach stories in this space? I mean, are, are you – what do you feel like your role as a reporter is? Yeah, I think um, – it's kind of it's it's two parts. So I think on on the one hand, it's kind of keeping on top of the advances and sure, reporting the on the state of the, of the science, right? Um, you know, I think there's a responsibility to not create fear around the technology, but to kind of try to accurately capture all of the possibilities, whether they be really awesome, like solving disease, or they be really scary because <laughs> um, there are always it's just a technology and uh, how it gets used is you know kind of independent from the capacity itself um, and so I think there's one part that is explanatory and it's just like what is the thing and helping people feel educated and having it that helps to make things less scary um, and then one part is is trying to, you know, hold institutions or, you know, companies or researchers to account if they're, you know, engaging in research that society, you know, isn't sure is something that's a good idea. Right. I mean, that piece of it, I mean, when you said part of your role is to make sure the technology isn't scary in some ways – your role is also to make sure people understand how scary it could be, right? Yeah, it's it's definitely um, it's definitely a balancing act, and I think 
you know, we don't um, benefit from scaremongering. No. Um, you know, there there are when there is a lack of kind of information and context, people and governments, you know, tend to make knee jerk <laughs> decisions that can impede progress that's really important and necessary. But at the same time, um, you know, this is this really is an unprecedented amount of control that humans are beginning to be able to exert over their own DNA and their own evolution as a species. And it is a responsibility to, you know, make sure that people are paying attention. Yeah. And beyond paying attention, I mean, so you've got your finger on the pulse of the landscape, whether it's the people doing the research, the people trying to monetize that research through various business initiatives for to whatever end, and then maybe some notion of what policymakers are thinking. You know, then you layer on the role of journalism on top of that. How do you think we're doing? Specifically with regards to CRISPR? Sure, yeah. I mean, that's a good example. I think it, it probably generalizes to other areas of technology where we're sort of trying to find our way or maybe completely have our head in the sand as w- with regard to future implications of the tech. Yeah, I think, um, you know, oftentimes what happens is, you know, kind of technologies like this are kind of happening, advancing and and things are happening in the commercial space and it's all kind of like under the radar of the public until kind of there's like one big event that kind of pulls it to the surface and I think for CRISPR that was what happened after we're like just past the year anniversary um, of uh, the discovery that um, a scientist in China uh, had created the first CRISPR humans right right and and there's still um, a lot that we don't know about that story. It's still kind of being reported out. I mean, we actually don't have proof that those that those babies exist um, because the the government has basically, you know, the researcher, who, the Chinese government, the Chinese government yeah. has kind of um, clamped down pretty hard on that experiment has been shut down. That researcher has not been seen for like nine months Um, and actually a lot of press about that is actually censored in China. So it's, um, it's, it's, we're kind of finding out in drips and drabs kind of, you know, what's going on with that. But that, but that moment really, I think crystallized for the scientists who were kind of pushing this forward that like there, people are going to, go beyond what we've kind of what the scientific community has as a reached as a consensus of like what's mm-hmm. appropriate and that's gonna you know like that's gonna happen and that's probably not the first that's not the last time that's gonna happen um and for when that when that leaks into the kind of public um when that's the event that like makes people aware of this, that's when you get into kind of um, tricky territory. Because if the only reference point that the majority of society has for this technology is like it's being used to make these like mutant humans who are maybe immune to HIV, but like maybe not, and it didn't go very well, and now the scientist is like missing, like it, it, uh, it definitely creates, um, you know, kind of a sense of panic that I think or has the potential to create a sense of panic that isn't necessarily the right 
reaction. Yeah, to I get have. what you're saying. Like, and you think about like all that secrecy. You know, to what end? Right? Is it to protect just leadership in the science? Is it to protect some notion of weaponizing the science, or or anything in between? Right? Um. Well, <clears throat> there was secrecy in the initial project itself. I think because the researcher um, wanted to make a splash sure. scientifically yeah, yeah. and, you know, didn't, didn't really want this to get out. Although there, it is, the reporting has shown that there are, have been a number of scientists, including in the U.S., who were aware of this um, ahead of time. And so now the conversation has kind of shifted to what responsibility did they have to report this experiment. Um, and so one of the evolutions that have, has happened in the last year is that organizations like the World Health Organization um, and kind of the National Academies of Sciences have started thinking about what would a governance structure look like that would prevent something that's this from happening. So right. having some kind of, you know, whistleblower help, you know, hotline or some kind of world registry for these kinds of experiments to kind of have a better grasp on what's happening. And then specifically, um, you know, I think the, the for the Chinese government, there's it was an embarrassing thing to have happen. There was sure. a lot of backlash. Yeah. And so I think they're trying to do damage control. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So you have been sort of pumping out for the last several years, you know, multiple hit Internet pieces primarily. You had some work in the print magazine, but it sounds like you're going to be doing more feature type work in, in the coming year. Um, yeah. What's I, that look like for I you? I can't say too much about it sure. um, at this juncture. But the Chinese government is not stopping <laughs> you? Is that or is it somebody else? It's not related to that. Okay. Um, okay. It's, Password it's protected? It's not related to CRISPR, although it is still in the um, genetic space. Um, but yeah, so, the, so Wired has um, on the website, we have kind of a long form section called Back Channel. Um, which I'm doing some work for uh, right now. And then, yeah, I'm working on a, on a print feature that I am will be reporting out kind of in the next four to six months. Um, and then hopefully that will go to print sometime late next year. Um, and, you know, that's – it's cool because it's a really different – it's just a really different level of editing. So, yeah, a whole different cycle, I would imagine. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. So I pitched this back, I think, in October, um, and have been you know working on it. But it's like I will, you know, so it, with print magazine, you have a primary editor, but then you'll have um, top editor. You'll have a top editor on top of that, and yeah, then it yeah. goes, you know, kind of all the way up up the chain. Um, and so it's a really, I'm really looking forward to it as a kind of valuable learning experience and getting to, to work with some, I mean, Wired's um, print editors are some of the best out there and they're just really smart, smart people. And it's a complicated story. So I'm excited to have their eyes on it. Um, and then it's just, it's just nice to have a little more room to work through. A lot of the stories I work on are really, they are complicated ethically mm -hmm. and scientifically and, also, there's good personalities, and cramming that all into a 1,200-word web story is tough, so I'm looking forward to having a little more <laughs> room Absolutely. to play with. It's interesting. I, I'm curious about like what, what makes a Wired story in particular. I mean, I've heard sort of these, like, these editors of these iconic publications, whether it's David Remnick at, at The New Yorker or Jeffrey Goldberg at The Atlantic, they'll say things like, you know, that's a great story. That's not an Atlantic story or that's not a New Yorker story. And it's sometimes 
it's hard to read the line between the lines of what they're actually saying, whether it's the topic, whether it's the quality of the writing, the sensibility, whatever that means. What is a wired story? Yeah, a wired story is so the way I think about it and the way we kind of talk about it as a um, you know as a publication is it is providing kind of necessary context around the transformational technologies that are like rapidly changing our lives. Mm-hmm. And Wired's always had kind of an engineering uh, edge to it. So oftentimes a Wired story is not just kind of a surface level, what is this thing and, and how is it going to impact you, but like really drilling down a level deeper and kind of geeking out <laughs> over something. So like I wrote this story this week about a um, kind of new form of birth control that's in development. Right. That, Crazy story. Uh, would be a once a month pill. And so the way it works is it's actually like a six armed kind of polymer that's in the hormones are embedded in it and it folds into a pill that you swallow and then it springs open in the stomach. And kind of that was like that was kind of like that information was out there. It was in the publication. Um, it was on the company that's developing, developing its website. But the kind of the wired, like the one level down was as I was talking to the company developing it, I was like, well, how are you testing this? Like, and it turned out they had actually built these artificial stomachs and wow. they had, they were using like robots to like squeeze <laughs> these bags to create the peristaltic waves that you would see in a, in a regular, in a oh, human gosh. stomach. And it basically allows them to like, accelerate their sure. kind of testing cycles and like that's to me like that was like I, when I heard that I was like oh that's like that's kind of the wired you know angle on this story is kind of like how how do you actually like make this like m- test this thing and like make this thing work um and then I think for the you know there's on the print side there's also a real attention to voice and vivid storytelling mm-hmm. um and you know it's very kind of cinematic and I think the we're always looking for stories that um, tell kind of the really make clear the impact of a technology but through how it's how it's actually affecting real people and there's just I mean like crazy characters have become kind of a hallmark of wired stories Um, you know and one thing I think so when the magazine started 26 years ago now like the internet was a very different place Mm -hmm. and one of the things wired has had to grapple with uh, as an organization is how do you go from being kind of this you know kind of fringe underdog like champion the nerd champion the the geek um you know kind of outlet to well now tech rules the world and everyone every publication is opening up a bureau in Silicon Valley to cover tech because, I mean, it's just... It's everything. It's everything. And yeah. so Wired really had to think about, really critically, about how do we go from being kind of the only one in this space really cheerleading these, you know, these yeah. nerds yeah. to being like, oh, now they're like, they run the world and now we have to hold them to account. So there's so definitely one of the things that has happened over the evolution of the organization has been how to... Um, you know, we've hired a lot of reporters who are, uh, you know, they do investigative reporting and, and they're, you know, embedding, you know, and and doing deep looks inside these companies. And so I think that's one thing that's been really challenging, but also really exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be such a fascinating time to, to sort of not be situated in a publication like this, but also with a, 
yeah, the reality is, is once you were sort of shining a light on these underdog characters, and now those characters are the wealthiest, most powerful decision makers and on the planet in many ways, like what's the response? How's, does the, how's the responsibility change as a journalist? Yeah, I think it absolutely. I think it has to change, and I think I think it has. And there's still room to be optimistic sure. and to cheer on. I think actually that's what's exciting for me, specifically covering kind of biology and and genetic technologies, is that a lot of people that in the areas that I cover really kind of see the life sciences as being in that moment that Silicon Valley and like the transistor world was, um, you know, kind of in the 80s. Yeah. And, you know, talking about kind of this move toward a biology-based economy and, like, this revolution, you know, this kind of, like, fourth revolution. Um, And so there is actually still a lot of optimism and a lot of room to find people who are doing things that are worth cheerleading, um, kind of in my space particular. But uh, certainly the folks who cover uh, the tech companies specifically for us are having to do a lot more of the accountability um, journalism. Well, I certainly appreciate you doing that work. Um, excited to sort of hear about this feature as it, as it unfolds, and maybe we can get you back on uh, in the fall to uh, to tell us more about it. In between your stints on Radiolab and, and all the other, <laughs> probably you're going to be on Vox and Ezra Klein and like all these other big prominent shows. Uh, so um, you can slum it with a new angle from time to time. Yeah, yeah. I'll be here every fall. Awesome. Well, Megan, thanks. Safe travels. And uh, yeah, great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was super fun. Okay, that was fun. Check out Megan's work at Wired.com or in print. She typically has two or three stories featured in the most popular section at any given time. All right, coming up next week, we're bringing you some more live music. Local musician Maya Wynn brings her unique sound and story to the pod. Stay tuned for that next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum, and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.